Over the next three days, I'm shooting a new course and I'm going to be talking about integrating a healthy superego. The reason for this, uh, we've already done a course called Silence the Inner Critic. We've done a course called Heal the Superego. We need to uh, develop a course that really strongly and thoroughly um, encourages us to integrate a healthy, kind, supportive, loving superego. For those of you not familiar with the term, it's, um, it's uh, from uh, Freudian psychoanalytic theory. Uh, Freud had the idea that you had an ego, um, your boundary between your vulnerable feelings in the world, your persona, your mask, uh, your identity, and then you had your id, which is like the inner child, your impulses. And then you had the superego that governed all. That is the internal governance that applies your value system to the decisions you make in life. And when it functions well, it's a direct mirror of a good parent with a child. So the good parent is with the child and as the child plays and explores, the good parent is probably behind the child and is taller, so behind and above. And from on high, issues commands to down low. Well, that's because when you're a kid, you're small, <laughs> you're short. <laughs> Some of us are not height blessed in adulthood, like myself, but we were all short once. <laughs> so you have this dynamic. Uh, so the, the, in the German translation, um, it would be, it's like over and above, not super like uh, Superman. This internal governance, this internal parent, um, if you had good enough parents, will be encouraging and fair and assertive. It will allow you to say no. It will allow you to assess if a situation is good for you or not accurately and to act appropriately. If your parent or parents or the environment itself was very bullying, very judgmental, very much using shame to control you or violence or fear, the superego becomes damaged and it actually emits messages from above, down below. Um, these are called injunctions. These are called injunctions. The messages from the godlike character to the human character um, are injunctions, edicts, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And it's based on, you know, when it's healthy, it's based on your value system. I value freedom. So I'm not going to do the thing that means that my freedom is taken away from me. I value honesty. So I'm not going to associate with the person that means I have to be dishonest, so on and so forth. What I'm about to say next is tough to hear, but don't be frightened by it. We have solutions for it. Um, with a toxic superego, it's not trying to apply values in your life. It's not even attempting to apply twisted values in your life. It's not even sort of encouraging you to lie, even though you value honesty or to, you know, behave cruelly when you value kindness. I think it's fair to say that for some of us who experienced significant childhood trauma, 
the superego is no longer trying to protect and guide you at all. It's actually trying to destroy you. Don't get freaked out. Um, you need to know this. We have solutions for it. And the reason you need to know it is it's the truth. So I've been doing group coaching recently. It's the first time back for me coaching in years. And what I'm hearing people say is they're confusing the I with the I. So there's an I and I. And they're saying, sometimes I sabotage myself. Sometimes I get into a relationship that I know isn't going to be good for me. And I say, wait a second. Wait a second. Are you sure that's you that's doing that? Or is that a hijacked, colonized part of you that's running some alternative agenda in your life that doesn't serve you, that doesn't suit you? Is that possible? Is that also um, a likely scenario? Because there's no, it's, it's no good us saying, well, I'm doing this, if it's actually another part of you that's, that's doing it. So this is where we have to say, okay, it's time to start looking at integrating, fully integrating a healthy, strong superego and making sure that it's doing its job. This is nothing less than full-scale um, reparenting from childhood. I haven't, I've known for a while that people need this to, because we could talk CPTSD recovery where, where you're basically okay and you can now live your life. You can go to the shops without crying or wanting to kill someone. And we can leave that as recovery. But Pete Walker's book is called From Surviving to Thriving. That's a very, very, very important word. And it means a lot. It means a hell of a lot. If you're thriving, you have to actually be showing up as you. The authentic self has to be present and visible, and that's where you need to be operating from. You have to be showing up as you. You have to be asking for what you really authentically want. You have to be doing what you really authentically want. You have to actually have boundaries and defend them, not just talk about them. <laughs> like that's my boundary and I'm like what happens if somebody crosses it nothing really well that's not a boundary that's just like a little believey that's a little game you're playing with yourself it's not a boundary is if you cross that boundary we're on another level like bad stuff is going to happen I'm going to leave some there's going to be like there's going to be a consequence it's not just like hey don't don't do that again that's not a boundary <laughs> that's that's nothing um, so how are we going to do that? Well, we have to actually uh, undo, uh, not just undo the damage from uh, childhood trauma, um, which you prob we probably already have. I mean, like the Fortress Mental Health Protection System, uh, that YouTube channel that's there, it lays it out step by step, exactly what you need to do um, in order to move forward uh, and in order to heal uh, from CPTSD in terms of recovery, the thriving element of it, showing up as your authentic self, asking for what you want, defending your own boundaries, that's beyond recovery from damage. We actually need, what we're doing is we're putting in place what would have been there if we had good parents. It's a lot, guys. I'm not going to lie to you. The um, scope and the ambition for this course is, uh, is broad.
There is no course, no therapy that's ever going to replace uh, uh, the real lived experience of having good parents in your childhood. So let me just pop that bubble right there. That's just not a thing. But we can and we should try to aspire to that. Such that, well, the thing to understand is the way that you love yourself, the way you speak to yourself, the way you care for yourself on a daily basis is a direct reflection of the way your parents cared for you, loved you and treated you on a daily basis when you were a kid. So if they were harsh, judgmental, critical, angry, unconditional, guess how you're going to be with yourself? Harsh, judgmental, critical, angry and impatient. If they ignored you or abandoned you, you will internalize into the superego um, the message, I'm a worthless piece of shit who doesn't deserve to be loved. And then the injunctions that will come down from on high will be uh, injunctions that reflect that. It gets worse though, kids. <laughs> it moves from injunctions into a belief system. So then your belief system becomes, I'm not worthy of love. Um, I am worthless. I am, a, uh, to use the psychoanalytic language, a bad object. This means that in object relations theory, you've internalized the way your environment was treating you as a very small child. Imagine with all that vulnerability, all that neuroplasticity, all of that openness, all of that submission to higher power that was there, you've internalized this notion of worthlessness. And it's a non-verbal, non-linguistic belief. It's just held as a, um, a baseline state. Imagine we're not talking about you for a second. Imagine you're a psychologist and we're discussing a client. And we say, well, here's a client and they hold a, a deeply held conviction that's pre-linguistic at a baseline level that they're completely worthless. Can you imagine that? Okay. Now imagine a person comes into that client's life who wants to love them, who wants to tell them that they're great, they're wonderful. What's going to happen with that client? Think about it for a moment. Think about it. The client knows in the way they know water is wet, in the way they know the sky is blue, in the way they know what it feels like to stand in sunshine, they know in the depths of their being that they're worthless. Somebody comes along and says, I love you, you're wonderful. What will the client interpret that as? Immediately, as a lie. This person must be lying because I know that the sky is blue, I know that water is wet, and I know I'm worthless. So suspicion, the sense that the person is lying to them, what else will they experience love as? They'll experience it as threat. Why? Where's the threat? Because you're trying to alter their map of reality. If I believe I'm worthless and you're telling me I'm wonderful, those two messages can't coexist in the same space. I've survived with my hard claw-like survivor grip that's born of terror, that's born of rage, that's born of survivalism this way up until this point in my life. So in my case, I've done 42 years with these beliefs. This is my life raft. You're telling me I need to let go of my life raft and, and, and a five minute paddle that way is a beautiful uh, Caribbean island. 
you're telling me that I've been in shallow water that I could have stood up in this whole time and that actually the water's warm and I'll be like, nah, this water's freezing cold and it's deep, it's full of sharks. And you're like, it's not, mate. It's not. You can let go of that thing that you've been clinging to. Your feet will touch the bottom. You can't see it, but trust me, your feet will touch the bottom. We'll paddle five minutes that way and there's a beautiful island over there. You know what your response would be? Fuck you. <laughs> you're trying to kill me. You're trying to kill me right now. What do you think? I'm stupid. You think I did this for 42 years and I got it wrong? I'm, I know what I'm doing. I've lived like this my whole life. I'm fine. You go away. <laughs> this is just one example. One of how childhood trauma causes us to internalize like a bad, um, it's like bad self-image. My God, that doesn't even cover it. But like a, a sense of ourselves as being worthless as being less than human. Um, and then when other people come along, it's enormously who say something different. It's very, very stressful. It's very, very confusing. So what I'm seeing with clients uh, recently, as I say, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of group coaching, um, not done any for years, um, won't be doing any again for, for a while, is I can see uh, uh, um, the way in which we've, learn to abandon ourselves in the way that our parents abandoned us. Uh, so we would have had parents who are either abusive or they just checked out, they went to alcohol, they went to some other addiction, they would physically leave or they would emotionally leave and they abandon us. So we abandon ourselves, particularly in moments of vulnerability. So when we, when we need to show up for ourselves the most, that's when we're at the highest risk of self-abandonment because when you say, uh, I have a job interview tomorrow morning and it's really important and I'm really scared and I'm really stressed out, well, your parents already coded you for when things get tough, I leave. So what are you going to do tomorrow morning during the job interview? Probably disassociate like hell. And then who are you going to blame for that? Yourself. You go, I can't believe I did that. I completely dissociated through the interview. I sounded like a zombie robot. I probably didn't get the job because we are all dissociating. We are all dissociating. It's the probably that response is probably the most primal and common response for childhood trauma because children are vulnerable. They can't talk their way out of it. They can't fawn. They can't run and they can't fight back. They're trapped with the abuser. They're trapped with this torturer. The only other option they have is to check out. So here's another part of the course that I'll be developing. I'm going to go back to disassociation because we all have to work on it. We've all become very skilled at checking out. We've all become very skilled at dissociating. That's like a superpower for us now. This is no good. It's no good for any area of your life. It might be somewhat useful for creative types um, who need to get lost in a fantasy world to write that sci-fi novel or whatever or to paint or to do music. But other than that, it's really not good. It's really not helpful. Um, another element that's new uh, that I'm seeing that's gonna be integrated into the course is the way the superego functions. I did mention this in the Fortress Mental Health Protection System video I did two months ago, but I've developed the idea since then that the superego is actually sending us emotional flashbacks like uh, Zeus, or, or the angry, angry Yahweh. It's the lightning from the cloud above. Why? 
if he sees you move into the wrong part of the garden where you're not supposed to go, you'll be um, controlled with what will feel like to you self-inflicted suffering. So let's say, let's say I'm, I'm a jealous God and I'm watching you. What's that fucker doing? Where's he going? And I see you drifting to the part of the garden where you could escape. There's a gate there. And I'm like, you fucking notice the gate. Oh shit. What will I do to stop you? Well, I'll send down a lightning bolt in the form of an emotional flashback of, you name it, fear, anxiety, self-doubt, self-sabotage, the freeze response. You'll see the gate and you'll be like, oh, I'll walk through that gate. Oh, suddenly I'm really, oh, I just need a nap. I'm just really tired right now. Or, oh, there's a gate. I could walk through that gate and escape. Oh, suddenly... I want to start a fight with Eve. I'm suddenly feeling really conflicty and fight response, whatever it is, right? Where's this coming from? This is coming from being raised by highly narcissistic, highly jealous parents who don't want you to rise higher than them. And you internalize at a, not just an unconscious level, at a pre-conscious level. There are certain places in the garden, to extend this metaphor, I must not go. Because when I do, mummy gets very upset and I get very frightened. Daddy gets very angry and I get very frightened. And I don't want to feel frightened, so I just won't go over there. We're covertly being controlled. How can a person who's still stuck in that garden, in the head, with an angry god and an angry goddess, sadists, total sadists, psychopaths, Control freaks, jealous, fragile, thin-skinned, um, self-obsessed, prone to uh, feeling uh, injured. How, how can we possibly dare to speak of thriving if we still live in that space? We can't. It's, it's, it's meaningless to talk about thriving. You're not going to thrive. You've got no chance. You're still dancing around the minefield that lies inside of you. And this is something that I've been thinking about for a while as far as uh, narcissistic abuse. I actually think we can talk, we can externalize the locus of control and talk about how skilled and charming and beautiful and intelligent the narcissist is. But I actually, I think this is an infantile response. I think it's a responsibility abrogating response that permits us to drink the draft um, of, of victimhood and it's an anesthetic and it feels good. You're numb from the pain. You drink the victimhood. Oh, I'm pure. There's nothing that I could have done to avoid my relationship with my ex. There's nothing that I did do that caused my relationship with my ex to go in that way. You know, this is, this is infantile. This is not this is not an adult way to process these experiences. I'm not saying that narcissistic abusers don't exist. They do. And that people are never victims. They absolutely are. But I'm not talking about objective truth. I said victimhood narrative. When you live with a victimhood narrative, being a victim becomes part of your identity. You actually, whether you like it or not, by the way, we all live by philosophy. We all have a philosophy of life. It could be a shit one, it could be a weak one, it could be a half-developed one, but you don't get to say, I don't need a philosophy of life. You have one. 
You absolutely have one. The victimhood narrative comes with its own philosophy. The coordinates are implicit. Life is done to me. I am not responsible for anything. Anything I do is to be understood through the prism of my victimhood. So even if I behave, this is where victimhood becomes narcissistic. Even if I behave badly, if you can understand my behavior through the prism of my victimhood, I can justify my shitty behavior. This has been a blind spot for me with my own clients for years because I'm a diehard codependent. And my, my tendency is always going to be leaning towards seeing the best in people. And uh, I really wish I'd called this out in myself much earlier and much more forcefully. And in my clients years ago, I should have been calling this out. Because it's, if we say the word narcissist here, if you use a little n, not a big n, it's a narcissistic philosophy. Victimhood is a narcissistic philosophy. It's... It's a way of what you're, what, what we are actually saying is, I am different, I am special, and worthy of a special set of rules being applied to me because I am a victim. I mean, there's nothing more narcissistic than that with a little n. That's different to narcissistic personality disorder, but it's a narcissistic way of functioning in the world. I'm special. I'm special and the rules don't apply to me. That's pure narcissism. It's pure narcissism. No exceptions, no excuses. It's not NPD, but it is narcissism to say, my suffering is unique and it justifies my shit behavior. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We have to stop this. This is actually written into the source code of uh, psychology itself. So where we assign the blame for where this idea comes from, it's an interesting philosophical debate, but you're never gonna find, you're never gonna find the source. I just wanna leave a little a little side note here, psychology has a tremendous amount to answer for in this regard. It's been implicit since its inception that moral issues are um, medical issues. Do you, do you feel that? Like if I have Goobelflopple syndrome, of course I steal things. I have Goobelflopple, come on. I have the, the thing, it makes me do the stealing. Of course I punch people on Tuesdays. I have such and such. A, there's nothing in psychology that, that says, uh, at a scientific level, um, there's nothing in psychology. There is in neurology. When people are brain damaged, uh, and I know because I've had uh, a, a, traumatic injury, a traumatic brain injury, I had my skull fractured and my the bag around my brain was completely split uh, doing martial arts. And uh, it did change me. It changed me for a while. So that's a different thing, but that's not psychology. That's neurobiology. That's neurology. That's a different subject. But in the realm of psychology, there is nothing that scientifically justifies immoral behavior. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There's nothing. There's no condition where we can say, oh yeah, they're allowed to do that. So, but you'll say to me, but in the courts, they use temporary insanity. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's not scientific. It doesn't it, There's no scientific basis for saying this person um, killed somebody uh, because of temp like temporary insanity. It's uh, It's not science. Uh, it's kind of it. it uh, what's the uh, the proper adjective for that? Is um, specious. It's specious. It's a specious exp uh, explanation, which which means. 
it sounds common sensey. It sounds like it should work, so it must be true. Fucking nonsense. It's absolute fucking, it's, it's nonsense, total nonsense. So we have to, part of this course that I'm developing is to review the narrative and say, okay, there are parts of this narrative that we're all living by that we really need to uproot. And it goes beyond um, psychology and it goes beyond narcissistic abuse and it goes beyond childhood trauma. We're living in a time of massive political and psychological upheaval because we've drunk um, a bitter and dangerous brew uh, called ideology and narrative over and over again because it anesthetized us. It, it stopped the pain, but we didn't realize it's addictive and it's poisonous. And now we're addicted and now we're poisoned. I was just saying on another live stream over on Richard Grant philosophy, when you speak to people individually, you'll see a big thirst for truth. You'll see people are really thirsting for truth right now. They're actually really thirsting for authenticity, but that's people, that's individual, that's persons, sorry. That's, per, that's individuals. At a collective level, we live in completely anti-truth times. This is an anti-truth era. Truth is punished, facts are punished, science is punished, um, derided, shamed, you know, or, or you know, cr criminalized even in some cases. It's completely criminalized in some cases on certain topics to simply state the truth. Dangerous times, really dangerous times, but as above, so below, as within, so without. We've got to wean ourselves off this um, ideological infection. What I would say is, how does this relate to CPTSD and childhood trauma? I think humanity is in its infancy, or maybe in its adolescence, it's trying to grow up, but we're trying to grow up and go from surviving, which is the mode we're in now, to thriving. But we're traumatized. We all have, humanity has childhood trauma because, makes sense, think of, think of like, the, like if this is our timeline and this is the modern era, or, thi or this, or this, this, this fingernail is the modern era, and then there's all the rest of this times 20 is everything up until the modern era. All of this times 20 is just horror. <laughs> it's just horror. Deprivation, starvation, disease, doom. <laughs> Watching your friends die, your children die, everything die, you get eaten by some horrible beast. So we're traumatized and, and we have, we're burdened with an imagination. We're burdened with memory. We're burdened with this higher level of consciousness and we're carrying it forward. So inter, we have intergenerational trauma at the human level. And we've got people coming with a survival mentality, coming from the reptilian brain. They're, they're clinging onto everything. They're like, no, everything is power. Everything is about dominance. Everything is about the dominance hierarchy. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. What kind of a world are we gonna create if we're all living in the reality tunnel of apex predators? What kind of a reality are we gonna create if we're all living in the reality tunnel of narcissistic psychopaths. If we keep letting narcissistic psychopaths be the ones who tell us how the world will run, then we'll always live in the world of a deluded, sadistic, punishing, frightened, insecure, 
lunatic. We're living inside of other people's delusional fantasies. See what I'm saying? So how do we heal from this? How do we heal from this trauma? I think healing from trauma depends on our ability to face truth and to face reality. And instead of choosing the draft with the drugs in, with the anesthetic, oh yeah, it's not my fault. Oh, it's a, it's all of those, it's all those people on the left. It's all those people on the right. It's all the blue t-shirts. All the it's like this is horseshit. This is this is infantile. It's and it externalizes our locus of control. That's why I'm saying the victimhood narrative is um, is lethal. It's lethal, and there's nobody in our culture who's not guilty of it. We're all thumb-sucking victims. We're all self-pitying, sad baby, archetype, uh, self-abandoning victims. This has to stop. This We have to grow past this moment and we have to do it very consciously. Uh, I don't think it's excessive or hyperbolic or, or, or pompous to say, you know, we really have to consciously evolve. That's the challenge. And if we will, I, there's no guarantee that we will. We have to also look at the truth that we could fail. We probably are failing the test. We need to take on everything. We need to know the full thing, the full facts. So this means uh, during for, for this course I'll be developing, we'll be looking at childhood trauma. We won't be checking out of childhood trauma and dealing with that in exchange for blaming the meanie narcissist. Come on. <laughs> We've we, we got to do better than that. We've got to integrate consciously and deliberately a healthy, strong, loving, supportive, kind superego that we live with. We've got to get friends with ourselves again. I think a lot of the hostility that we see in the world is because we've fallen out with ourselves. People are out there looking for fights in order to feel alive. They feel numb, they feel empty, they feel invisible if they're not fighting. That's not life. That's uh, zombiehood. That's that's really all vampiric. I don't know. In that sci-fi movie, are you a vampire or a zombie? You you're that version of vampires that is not cool and sexy. You know the vampires are really ugly and kind of zombieish. They're like rotten corpses that come out the grave, and they're all you're between the two. You're a zombie, zo zombie vampire, because you're you're seeking the blood of conflict. Because you're not alive. Why are you not alive? Because we're, we're cut off from ourselves. We're not friends with ourselves. We're not present to ourselves. Our, uh, our elders have abandoned us. Our parents abandoned their duties to us. Our politicians, our leaders have abandoned us. So now we in turn go, fuck it, I'm a bad object. I'll abandon myself. This can never lead anywhere good. This can't lead to sanity. This can't lead to reason. This can only lead to chaos, entropy, and dissolution. Um, it's not a pretty future. The, the track that we're on right now is not pretty. So that's another thing I'd like to do within this course. And uh, we'll also be looking at dropping the story. So now what I'd like to do is if you're watching this after the live, if you could leave a comment that just asks a question, I'll go through over the next three days and read all of the questions. The next three days I'll be shooting the course and I wanna make sure that I'm touching on what people want me to focus on. Um, 
So if it's anything related to CPTSD, overcoming childhood trauma, the symptoms of CPTSD, issues with the superego, issues with emotional flashbacks, please uh, do feel free to ask in the comments. I will be reading it um, and I will be answering it as I, as I develop the course. Um, and uh, similarly, right now, if you have any questions, if you can make it one sentence long and ending in a question mark, um, that'd be useful. Apart from no contact, how do we live with narcissism? Um, you don't really live with narcissism. You survive it. Could you please make a video about pressure put on subcultures, different looking ones, and how it is related to CPTSD? Um, I don't really understand that question. Pressure put on subcultures and how it relates to CPTSD. Uh, if you could ask that again and just, uh, just clarify what you mean, because I don't want to assume I know what you mean and then drift off in the wrong way. What's the name of the course? Don't know yet. Don't know yet. Um, we'll see. See, I haven't uh, haven't uh, done it yet. Heywood, <laughs> no silly questions, please. You soft ass. <laughs> Integrating the superego would be the first step, says Rosana. Then you would have to apply it to show yourself to the world. Yep, that's true. Can counselling help, says Caroline. Yep. It should do. How do you control chronic daydreaming, dissociation? I'll, I'll be covering that in the course um, specifically, but chronic daydreaming and dissociating is an emotional flashback. When you're doing that, you're in an emotional flashback. So you really need to work on reducing your emotional flashbacks and developing your emotional literacy. If you want to know more about doing that, you can head on over to Fortress Mental Health Protection System and that will teach you. Uh, how that's done. How do you create more loving and present patterns um, into the subconscious, not fall into old patterns? The great thing with the unconscious is its primary focus is uh, safety. And if you can show it a better, safer way to be in the world, it will take it on board without question. It won't, it won't resist you as long as it's convinced it's superior and safer. It will just, it will do it. You won't be able to stop it. So if you show the uh, subconscious a safer way, a better way of getting things done, it takes it. And you'll be like, no, I didn't, I just wanted to show you. I didn't want you to do it. The subconscious is like, no, we're doing this now. Um, it's safety, very, very much safety focused. Remember, I'm talking safety in the context of psychology. So take it on board in that sense. It's like what makes you feel safe, what makes you feel uh, secure becomes the, uh, the key issue there. Um, if you can make the questions one sentence long and ending in a question mark, that would be, be super kill. Racer says, Richard, so if one does this course, will it give them a healthy self-worth, not wanting to be invisible, self-negating and dark thoughts? Thank you. Um, I would hope that the course would open the door to you developing your capacity to being visible, to being seen and to being out in the world as your authentic self and to really having a superego that isn't silenced and isn't not sending you dark thoughts, but that is actively encouraging you. 
so that it's your unfriendly terms with it would be my um, objective for sure. Self-worth um, is, is an interesting one. I think, I suppose in some ways, like, I've always liked psychoanalytic theory. I think it's it's not perfect and there's, there's big problems with it, but of everything, it seems to be the thing that describes, it describes what humans are really doing um, the best. So self-worth would be the sense that I'm not a terrible object. I might be a neutral object. I might actually be a good object. You might like you might not see the distinction between the two, but I don't think self-worth is a quantity like a bag of rice that you have and then you put it on a scale and then you pour more rice into the bag and then you have more of it. It's it's a sense that maybe I'm maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm lovable. Maybe. Maybe I'm not awful. And then eventually, no, I think I think I'm good. I think I'm actually good. You know, it's 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 like that. Um, and it's necessarily vague because it's in, you can access it, but it, it's lingering in the unconscious. It's not really in the conscious. It's a sense that you may be okay. You may be lovable. But in order to get there, you really have to have uprooted um, the issues that you went through with your parents. And you have to be able to say that, that was not okay. Um, so there are there are um, taboos that we must break. There are covenant covenants that we must break. There are altars that we we must smash with a hammer, which is hard. Um, but nothing less will do. You can't be like, oh, they did the best job that they could. Um, you know, they were raised in the sixties in this country, and it was different. You can't be doing that. It's not going to work. You have to be capable of having the uh, critical thinking and the boundaried level of clear thought to say, whilst I hold their value constant as human beings, for the job of raising a child, they get rated an F. That's a total fail. They screwed, if, if they did screw it up, you have to go all the way. You can't, um, because if you do that, you're continuing the codependent cycle. You're protecting your abuser from the full truth. I mean, you know, and if they fucked up, they fucked up. That's the truth. We just all have to live with that. They did a shit job. They did a shit job. Like, you know, water's wet, sky's blue. Uh, it can be really hard for codependents with CPTSD to accept that and deal with it. But it's enormously healing when you do, because that's the truth. So that's where you move from the victimhood narrative to um, the objective truth of what happened. The objective truth of what happened, exploring that, knowing that, being present to that, being present to it and non-reactive to it will set you free. The victimhood narrative is a deadly, deadly trap. Deborah says, how do you know how difficult it is to raise a child unless you've raised children of your own? Um, I, I don't think I claimed that I know how difficult it is to raise a child, Deborah. Thank you, Richard. Great content, says Anki Pank. Well, thank you. The objective truth is what's so traumatizing. No, no, it isn't. Um, what's so traumatizing is running from it for years. 
But I hear you. Uh, the object you think the objective truth is going to be. If you think facing the objective truth is going to be a reliving of the trauma, um, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be at all. Um, it will de-traumatize you. Being present to it, knowing it, processing it. Um, the truth really will set you free. I agree with, uh, that's the Gospel of John, right? The truth will set you free, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Swedish, what? Richard, do you believe that almost 50% of the world population are narcissists? No. <laughs> no. No, there's no way. Um, it's an extremely rare, well, not extremely rare. It's not extremely rare, but it's rare. It's a rare condition, narcissistic personality disorder. And it takes quite unique settings in childhood to create NPD. You said that you saw that on another narcissism channel. If... If what they mean is um, a narcissistic attachment style is at 50%, I would say, no, I mean, it's at 95%, 100% probably. I mean, if you're talking within consumer capitalist cultures, our, t our capacity to safely attach is probably at around zero right now. Like we, we don't know how to safely attach to each other because we are such narcissistic consumers. So we can only, this is the problem with ideology. It doesn't just teach you what to want. As Zizek says, it teaches you how to want. So if you're in consumer consumerism and materialism, the relationship is an experience for you to enjoy. The person is a, is a thing for you to consume in a certain sense. And so nobody's literally doing this. Nobody's consciously doing that. That's the point with ideology. You don't know how steeped in ideology you are because it's non-conscious. It, it exists, the danger of it exists in the unconscious. Um, but th this is not NPD. That doesn't mean you have narcissistic personality disorder because if the context changed and the culture shifted, you would change instantly. While personality disorder needs to be Permanent, pervasive, pervasive meaning across contexts and uh, permanent, we all know what fucking permanent means, it's not temporary, uh, pervasive and personal, meaning it's in you. So we could stick you on a desert island with people from another culture whose language you don't even speak, whose cultural coordinates are totally different to yours and you'd still be a narcissistic abuser to those three people on the desert island. That's a personality disorder. This is not that. You can have a narcissistic attachment style, a narcissistic interrelational style um, without having MPD. And I think that I think we all do. I think it would be more than 50 percent if that's what they mean. I would say it's probably 95 to 100 percent because we don't know how to not see human. We don't know how to see humans anymore. We just see commodities. Um, we've we've successfully uh, gotten to a place culturally where we're writing ourselves out of the story. What I mean by that is we're writing humanity out of... Humans are writing humans out of existence. We're writing humanity and the essence of what makes us human out of reality. What makes us human? Well, if you're comparing us to AI or robots that produce machines, what might make us human? 
perhaps traits like compassion or kindness. Well, we live in a, and love, vulnerability, intimacy, uh, the capacity to show time and attention to another human being, to show you care, to be with you, to be present with you. All of that's being written out of the culture. All of that's being written out of our interactions. So the one, if this is a philosophical point, would be to ask yourself a question as a thought experiment. Uh, if we were replaced by AI robots, what would the difference be? Well, with every day that passes, less and less of a difference. I mean, like, what, different, what difference would it make? And, how, and what, would, what would distinguish us? What would, what would be the distinction between the two states? Here's, here's humanity functioning like this, but everybody's an AI robot. And here's humanity as it was, but people were still flesh and blood human beings. The, the distinction every day that passes between those two hypothetical worlds, the distinction, the gap is shrinking. It's shrinking There's the, to the point where they become symmetrical. It's, it's, it's the same. It's not over yet. We have to push back, but we can't hold on to our old toys and our old narratives that make us feel, ooh, yummy, yummy special and move forward. We're going to have to give stuff up. I wonder if people know how much they're going to have to give up over the next 10 or 20 years. <laughs> I try not to think about it, but these uh, this, is the, this is the maturation process that uh, we as human beings have to go to broadly. And as people who would identify as having CPTSD, childhood trauma, or having been in narcissistically abusive relationships, we're all going through the same, the same process. We all have to upgrade. Another little philosophy point from Nietzsche, if you think about your day yesterday and you imagined reliving that same day again 40,000 times until you died, how would you feel about that? That should indicate to you whether you're living a life that you really want to be living or whether you're just getting by day to day. Um, and it's a, it's a good question to ask because according to the psychology, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. For most of us here over the age of 30, the way that we just spent the last three years living, the next three years will look identical to it to around 90 to 100%. Think about that. Unless you make big changes, our baseline tendency is to repeat. We're quite unconscious creatures. Hit me with another question, somebody. Purposeful parental estrangement to protect yourself. Your view, if you, you gotta do what you gotta do, man. If you need to protect yourself, you, you protect yourself. Uh, Okay, Alexandra says, hi, so superego is one who speaks in mind. You would do well to at least um, maybe spend like 10 minutes just looking up the theory uh, of superego. It's, it's well worth, it's so critical in terms of psychology and, and where we're up to as a species. Um, it would be better if you got that information from the source. Um, yes, the superego injunctions can show up as a voice inside of your head. Distinguishing between your ego-based internal dialogue and a savage toxic superego injunction is a useful life skill as well. Hey, people have been sending me money. I appreciate that. You don't need to send me money though. That's very kind of you, I appreciate that. Um, okay. Uh, Daffid says, do you think that overthinking can destroy the mind? Whereas the man in the jungle does in each minute. 
Um, I, I don't think overthinking would destroy your mind, but I think it's uncomfortable and creates uh, suffering. And so, you know, you should, you should be looking to uh, alter that, do something else instead. Overthinking and overanalysis is uh, a style of dissociation uh, that I would call uh, intellectualizing. So people are trying to keep away from the feelings and the sadness that's down here in the body, in the chest, around the heart. They're trying to push it up into the head and they're trying to process and consume and digest emotions with the brain instead of the heart. And uh, you can't do that, it doesn't work. So you double down on it. So you're like, it didn't work. Okay, try harder, think more thoughts. It's still not working. Okay, just think more thoughts. <laughs> And then uh, the more you do that, the more skilled you get at it. Okay. Uh, last question. Kristen how asks, how supportive are spiritual practices in this maturation process? Or do antiquated practices that do not belong to modern man only lead spiritual bypassing? That's the last question. I could do, I could do an hour on this. Um, well, you said spiritual practices. So straight away, we'd have to go, like, what is that? What's a spiritual practice? Um, I'll try and answer this as quickly as I can. Here's my pet theory. My pet theory is that what we in the modern world understand as the spiritual practices of, of centuries ago, I think we're seeing a fraction of what they were actually doing. Um I wouldn't, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I would say I have a suspicion that all of the old initiation schools, all of the old mystery schools, um, probably even uh, early uh, Christianity, must have had a process for dealing with intergenerational trauma. I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen it in the Upanishads. I've not seen it in... The Greek schools, I've not seen it in the Kabbalah, the Hermetic schools. But they must have done. They must have had something. Because it's such a block to any kind of growth. It's such a it's the first one you hit. It's the first stumbling block that you hit. The Zen schools, some of them touch on it a little bit. Um, but there's not nothing I've seen that's convincing. So I could be a fantasist who just wants to make the practices of ancient times better and bigger than they were. Or um, I could say that where you see a very well-developed system of full-scale uh, psychological, we would call it psychological, they called it spiritual, you know, whatever, development, it's personal development, um, I think what we get now are bits and pieces missing. One of the things that led me to this, by the way, is uh, I did some videos on meditation on the Richard Granham Philosophy Channel. And I, I was asking people, uh, is there any such thing as a school of religious practice or spiritual practice where you meditate bereft of a moral system or a religious teaching? Is there any... And you could say, well... The Zen, that's pure meditation. And I'm like, yeah, it's Buddhism though. It's Buddhism. There's a moral, there's a moral philosophy there. It's an absolutely intricately developed, nuanced, sophisticated system of moral philosophy. So what's the point I'm making here? 
I think what we call spiritual by uh, not spiritual bypassing, what we call spiritual processes might be 10% or maybe 15% of what the people who were doing it were living. A lot of these systems were, um, they were just passed down from teacher to student, one-to-one. Well, that's not a very economic, you can't make money doing that. It's not a very economic system. Um, a lot of it would have been oral tradition. So you're just being told what to do. A lot of the mnemonics would have been orally transmitted. There might have been things or you'd remember with your body or you'd remember with movement or sound or song. Or, and we just, we just don't have it. Sometimes I think some of the texts that we look at today are code. And it's pointless trying to read them because we don't have the code. Like you read a book of Revelation and I'm like, this is clearly code. This is obviously code. We just don't have the, uh, the, the codex that lets you know what, what the hell they're talking about. So spiritual practice, either um, it was much ado about nothing and people were living for thousands of years just kind of getting by on bits of fluff or we just don't know what they were doing anymore, but we pretend that we do. And we, we like a lot of the, a lot of it is just gone. It's lost to history. Um, or if you want to be a paranoid conspiracy theorist, it's been deliberately suppressed and deliberately um, kept from people. So we do actually know what you need to do in order for such and such a ritual to have the effect it's supposed to have on you. But we just, we just keep it from the general population, um, which is a, it's a, I actually think of the paranoid conspiracy theories. That's actually a perfectly reasonable one. There's a lot of reasons why, uh, you know, mainstream dogmatic religion uh, would, would want to do that. So in fairness to modern man, who's no different, like, you know, I was looking at Vedic texts yesterday, uh, some Upanishad or something that's written in uh, 1500 uh, BC. And I'm going, this is so intricate. It's so well-developed. I don't think that you can pick that up and just go, here's the text without somebody there to explain it to you and then just apply it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think that the problem is we just don't know. We just don't know what we're doing. So the modern man and the man of 1500 BCE or woman of BCE, the modern human versus that human, they're the same thing. We've not changed. Our brains haven't changed. There's no time. There's no time to have evolved significantly. So we're this exact same entity. So why does spiritual practice lead to bypassing? To give modern man a pass, we're probably being shown a, like 5% of what the actual system was and what it involved. Um, and as I say, I, I can't believe that these systems didn't get into uh, the processing of childhood trauma and, and uh, attachment trauma and issues with your parents. I just, I can't, I can't believe that because it's such an obvious immediate stumbling block. So that was me trying to be uh, brief. How did I do? Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for helping me to think about this subject. I appreciate the interaction. Please do post questions uh, underneath this video. Um, I will be looking at them over the next three days um, and I will be integrating them into the course as I go along. Um, as ever, thank you very much for your time and for your attention. 
and I look forward to speaking to you very soon. Cheers.